I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A week ago, verdict came to you from my living room while I was self-quarantined in Texas and Michael was skipping and scot-free in California. Today, the tables are turned. Now, Michael and the entire state of California are on lockdown. He's in effective quarantine with the rest of the Golden State. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. I'm Michael Knowles coming to you from lockdown as now, even since the last time we spoke, the 7th and 11th largest economies in the world have gone on lockdown, California and New York. Now, Senator, thank you very much for doing that cold open, because not only are you, are you doing my job on the cold open, you're also doing the job of the booking producer. You have brought along one of your friends, Senator Barrasso from Wyoming, who, who has expertise not only as a senator, but also as a physician to help us try to understand this pandemic. Well, John, welcome. John Barrasso, senator from Wyoming, but he's also Dr. Barrasso. And so, so he is wearing uh, not only a senator hat as the number three uh, Republican in leadership and head of the Republican conference, but also someone who's been a medical doctor for uh, many decades now. Uh, and so welcome, John. Glad to have you. Uh, great to be here. And I'll tell you, this is such a popular uh, show, certainly in Wyoming. Uh, verdict, people turned it on every night during impeachment. <laughs> and yeah, well, but remember, four years ago, uh, you were the choice of Wyoming. And uh, we were big Trump territory now. But I'll tell you, you were the, the pick 
of the people of Wyoming who went to the Republican convention in 2016. Well, John, thank you. I, I will say you're the second senator to join us on this podcast. The, the first was Lindsey. And, and Lindsey, in his typical understatement, walked in and said, what in the hell is a podcast? <laughs> and, and I'll also, cleaning up his language, I think. I, I'll also point out, he, he looked at, at these gigantic microphones. He looked at this shag carpet out of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you guys are the number one podcast in the world, who the hell is number two? <laughs> Some guy in a, in a park outside a van? Uh, yeah, that's... That's, so, that's Lindsay. So, so, so you've got a high bar to reach because yes. Lindsay's blazed the trail. Well, he is must-see TV. He's a high-wire <laughs> act, and people are always waiting to see which side of the wire he's going to fall off of, but he's amazing. Well, Senator Barrasso, I'm so glad you could join us today because I know that typically senators are able to go home for the weekends. It looks like that will not be happening now. There are m- multiple bills that have been voted on. We're waiting on the next bill to come forward. I was wondering if maybe we could talk, as Senator Cruz, as you mentioned, from your viewpoint as a physician. So much of this is focused on getting more respirators produced, getting them out to hospitals. Just from the medical perspective, where do we stand right now? Well, I'm happy to talk about all of those things because you're right. I go home every weekend to Wyoming, was home last weekend, talked to a number of folks who were physicians, as I continue to do now by phone, but was there in a number of events around the state of Wyoming last weekend, and we have changed dramatically as America's economy and America has essentially shut down as has the world. And when you think about last weekend, we went from a day in Las Vegas where uh, the one day they were going to close down the buffets to two days later, they closed down the entire town. So this is moving very quickly. And so it is as well medically. Talking to folks at home, I talked to the hospital administrator, I said, do you have enough respirators? Well, they have 18. Now, I've practiced medicine there since 1983, so 37 years. They've never used all of them at the same time. So by any stretch of the imagination, we have more than we need at our hospitals Hmm. and around the state of Wyoming. Uh, But if this pandemic goes full-blown, as we're concerned about and what we're seeing in other places around the world, there may not be enough. But to just put it into perspective, and Ted and I were talking about this at lunch, if you take a look at England, the whole country, about 50 or 60 million people, they have 5,000 of these ventilators, machines, that you, breathing machines that you can hook people up to. We have 160,000. So for every one they have in England, we have 32. But we only have wow. about five to six times the population that they have. So we yeah. are the most prepared country in the world to deal with this. Do we have enough? I hope so but we may not. But if we don't, no one does. And that's the concern. And that's why we're working so much with social isolation and separation and keeping people distance, uh, trying to do the proper things with hygiene, all in an effort to prevent more rapid spread and a prevention of the ongoing concern that we have about the capacity, not just with respirators, but what I hear when I talk to folks at home is, are there enough tests? Can we get people tested who have symptoms? And then are there enough personal protective equipment available? So, John, let's let's unpack this a little bit. And you and I were discussing this over lunch. So, so the ventilators are these big machines for those of us without MDs. The yes. big machines that breathe for you if you're you're either in surgery or you've got severe respiratory mm-hmm. problems in an intensive care unit. In, in intensive yeah. care, and so so the the challenge uh, is that you look at at some of these countries, and I think Italy has seen it mm-hmm. the worst 
where we're reading stories out of Italy where they've run out of ventilators and they're sitting there with, with multiple patients in respiratory failure and they're having to make triage decisions of this person gets a ventilator, we're going to save this person's life and this person, we're not going to save this person's life. And they're not sure if it actually is going to work to save that person's life because on average, some of these people are on these machines for 10 to 14 days. And at what point do you know? You know, they've been there a week and you don't know which, which way it's going to turn. So the, one of these machines gets tied up a long time with a patient who is on the machine, which is why they're working so hard with medicines that are already available worldwide that may help shorten the amount of time that somebody would need to be on the machine. The president talked about that with a malaria medicine. There's some HIV AIDS medicine, things that we think may be helpful. Uh, so also you, hepatitis medicine. You were chief of staff at a hospital in, in Casper, Wyoming. You said they had 18 ventilators and your whole time there, you never used all 18. Right. They were Same always, time. yes. The, 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 what happens if at that hospital, a hundred people show up with coronavirus and with severe symptoms? What happens yeah. then? And so the next thing you do after those 18 is the machines that you can use in an operating room for anesthesia. If you put somebody to sleep. But that takes additional manpower, personnel that know how to use them. Anesthesiologists know how to use them as they do during a surgery. But that's not 14 days. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to have a huge amount of resources, people and personal protective uh, equipment uh, to, to keep those people safe while taking care of the folks with, uh, with coronavirus. And, and that's the big concern is that we may overwhelm and tire out the staff as well. They're already working significant overtime hours. And if any of them get get the disease, and some of them are, then they're taken out of the out of the fight. Rob, well, I know Senator Cruz, you uh, made a point of of writing a letter about this. In terms of getting these machines, uh, obviously, as Senator Brasso says, we're in a much better position than other countries, but we could use more. Uh, you have suggested that the administration invoke the. Defense Production Act. This is a law from 1950 that would turn uh, our manufacturing capacity toward government ends, especially in times of war, times of a pandemic. You uh, requested that the administration invoke this, and it looks like today they have. Well, that's right. And so, so I wrote a letter this morning to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, and I, I urged him to use the delegated authority from the president to direct uh, the, the building of critical medical equipment, and in particular, ventilators. I, I don't want to see us in a situation like horrifically they're seeing in Italy. I don't want to see doctors having to make mm -hmm. a choice of who gets to live and who has to die because they don't have the equipment to save their lives. And, and you can't build a ventilator overnight. And, and, and if we wake up two weeks from now and, and instead of 11,000 cases, we've got 200,000 cases or a million cases, uh, it might be too late then. And, and so I believe that the, that the president, the administration ought to direct the, the, the manufacture of, uh, of these ventilators and, and masks and other equipment that is needed. We ought to be directing it right now so that we can meet this crisis. Um, th this is, everyone recognizes this is a public health threat. We need to do everything on the front end to make sure we're not forced into an impossible situations on the back end. And, you know, military opportunities to use the equipment there as well from the VA hospitals hmm. and other sources. So there, there are some, there's some additional capacity, but it can still get stretched to the limit. And listen, you don't necessarily have to have 
the the hospital in Wyoming doesn't necessarily need to go from 18 ventilators to 100. But right. but there needs to be a central repository where ventilators are being constructed where you can surge that if there's an outbreak in a, in, mm-hmm. in a region and, and, and ventilators are needed, that you can get them there and you can get them there in real time uh, w- where the need is. You know, some conservatives have asked about this. They say, is this a government overreach? Is uh, the invocation of, for instance, the Defense Production Act uh, something that is unprecedented? But it, it is worth noting, this law has been invoked many, many times over the years. It was invoked during the Obama administration. So while there might be concerns about how the government is handling this, on this particular front, it seems sort of like a no-brainer. Well, and it's also how America has overcome virtually every major challenge we've seen is the incredible economic might of the American free enterprise system. I mean, it's how we won World War II as we directed. Remember, World War II for us started with Pearl Harbor, started with with a kamikaze attack, a surprise attack that took out uh, a a vast percentage of of, of our naval fleet. and, And we leaned in and rebuilt, and it was the power of this economy that enabled us to, to, to win World War II. We can mobilize that same economic power to make sure, you know, it was a striking thing, John. I don't know if you watched any of the debate between Bernie and Joe Biden. Yes, <laughs> it was painful, but I did. I only endured about 30 <laughs> minutes of it. There, there, there really was just sort well, of Well, there were a... no sports on Sunday night. You know, the NBA was shut down. So, um, But it was very interesting when Bernie was pointing to this crisis as justification for socialized medicine yes, and, and, and what he calls Medicare for all. I thought it was striking that, that Biden jumped in and said, well, you know, Bernie, Italy has socialized medicine and we're seeing that it, it isn't right. working there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that in a Democratic primary was this sort of startling moment of sanity that, that, that stood out for how different it was from almost everything else in the primaries. And, and even the Washington Post, uh, not known for being a conservative voice, had the, <laughs> the, the challenges of coronavirus to countries with socialized medicine. And the statistics that I just gave you about respirators uh, and ventilators, Michael, the breathing machines that cost $50,000 a piece, that's where all the f- statistics come to as to how few they have other places compared to the United States and why, according to Johns Hopkins University, the United States is the most prepared country in the world to deal with this threat that we're, pa- now, that we're know, facing. Now, you described the U.S. versus England, and you said we're much better prepared than England. They have socialized sure, medicine in England, do, too. Yes. How does the U.S. and England, how do they compare to Italy? Well, uh, both are better than what's happening in Italy now. The, mm. the virus, it's, it's unusual with this virus. We're seeing that it seems to be affecting old, not just older people, older people who are smokers. And there's a question of, has the virus changed and mutated a bit in ways that it's striking people differently? You know, you look at China, they're kind of over the hump, it looks like, in terms of new cases. If you believe them, I don't believe them. Uh, and at the same time, you're seeing significant increases in France. They had a big jump in deaths the other day. So is it actually getting worse in Europe as it's getting better in China? You know, Michael, John and I are both members of two informal caucuses, I would call them in the Senate. One uh, is the Boot Caucus. Uh, and, and there are probably <laughs> 20, 25 senators that wear cowboy boots, mm-hmm. Republicans and Democrats. And, and I've joked that, that if you're wearing boots, you can't be all bad. Uh, sometimes our <laughs> colleagues test that proposition. Yes. 
Um, and then secondly, uh, we, we are both uh, among the senators of Italian-American heritage. So, so as we look at what's happening in Italy, uh, John, John's ancestors and my, and my own uh, trace their lineage there. No, I'm sorry, I have to say I'm not in the boot caucus, but I am in the Italian caucus. And of, of <laughs> course, uh, that uh, uh, with a name like Cruz, I wasn't so sure about the Italian, but I, 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 I I'm certainly Cuban, would. Cuban, Irish, and just a little bit Italian. <laughs> oh, that's, that is excellent. And, uh, Senator we Barroso claim him. With we a claim him and are happy name, to but, have him. <laughs> but I'm sorry, I cut you off, as you were saying. No, I mean, we, we, uh, it, it's Ted's right, and we talk about socialized medicine, and they're always stretched to the limits. So they really yeah. cannot handle the sort of things that are happening here globally. Uh, the, the stretch is even greater. And it's certainly this time of year, the British hospitals are always overloaded at this time of year when they have to cancel elective cases. Uh, and we are yeah. now in the United States canceling elective cases just to make sure the capacity is there. And a lot of it has to do with these personal protective uh, equipment that folks need in terms of the masks, in terms of the uh, the, the, the sterile gowns, the gloves, all of those things, because if, if there's not enough of them, then they shouldn't be using them for elective procedures. Well, senators, I would be interested in, Senator Brasso, your medical perspective, and then Senator Cruz and your political perspective as well, on what the state lockdowns mean. Uh, you know, a lot of people have written in and they, they understand that we have a federal system and so the states can do things that the federal government cannot do. But as a conservative and as someone with absolutely no medical expertise whatsoever, how should I be looking at the state lockdowns? Are they a good thing? Are they conservative? Are they medically necessary? Well, you know, I'm a state's rights guy. I mean, that's how I was in the Wyoming state legislature. I am still that way now. Uh, and it's the governor of our state that's making decisions. The uh, and, and in many states, the governor can't even close down the schools. In our state, it's a hmm. local decision by various school boards, local control, local decisions. So I think it's better to have things done that way. Education is so much a part of this. But the more we can do to have people washing more frequently, staying in terms of the, the uh, away from each other, the distancing, all of those things, I think is the better chance to take care of the first crisis, which is the medical crisis that we have, and then deal with the economic crisis that we also have. We just alluded a bit to the economic crisis and this strong and robust economy that we started from and having to get that all restored again. To get to that point, we have to get the medical crisis behind us. And the best way to do it is the social distancing, the proper hygiene, and all of the things that we can do to stop the spread of the disease. John, let me ask you, as you know, yesterday, uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, uh, said that, that over half of the people in California, over 25 million people, could become inf infected with this virus. I, as a doctor, does, does, does that sound credible to you? I hear a lot of people that are not right. sure the magnitude of the threat. What, what's your assessment from a medical and, perspective? And, uh, and Angela, Angela Merkel said in, in Germany, maybe 60 to 70% of the population there. You know, if this continues to spread, and I think there's a difference between having the disease and testing positive or having, a, having mm. the so, so virus. What's the, what's so the there, I think there are some people that uh, may become infected and not even show symptoms or show signs of it. The We've seen it with the younger people, with the, you know, the children that may be carriers of the disease, that they would test positive. Then you worry about them near grandmom or grandpa. So they could have the virus in the system, and they can, but not really be affected by it. We're not exactly sure 
why that is. And when I talked about the possibility of a, a virus mutation and changes, now they're seeing uh, in, in Europe, sometimes, what is it, 45 or 50 percent of the people hospitalized are under the age of 55. I mean, we kind of thought of it as an old mm -hmm. person's disease. And in terms of those dying, it does seem to be that older group. But some of the people on respirators are now in a somewhat younger group as well. Now, are they mostly people who have asthma or other significant respiratory illnesses or yeah, what? I think they're still trying to figure that one, that one out because the, the medical systems in Italy and France are overwhelmed. They're not that able at this point to kind of come back with good research numbers and tell well, and us. And their fatality the rates go, go up. I mean, when, when the medical system's overwhelmed, yeah. you see you see four, five, six percent fatality instead of one or two. One to two percent, which is what they expected it to be. Uh, the, the flu, which I think this year in the United States is going to kill about 36,000 Americans. That's one tenth of one percent. Uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Fauci said, you know, if we get everything and do it right here, it would be you know, 10 times that. But you're right. Across the world, we're seeing numbers much higher than that. Well, Senator Brasso, to your point, there may be many people who have the virus or who are not showing symptoms or certainly who have not tested positive. Is there any way that, that testing will become so widely available that we'll be able to figure out what the denominator is? Because obviously we're not going to get a very good sense of the fatality rate if we don't know how many people have it in the first place. Well, that, that's exactly right. And Ted and I were to lunch with the president last week and Tony Fauci and others. And you know, when they said, well, we're going to have more and more tests available, I said, well, then you're going to have a lot more positives just because mm. we, they're already positive. They just don't know it. And uh, right. we're now at that phase where I think we're over 17,000 positive tests in the United States. Over 200 have died. But if you could get to the point where more and more people are tested, we may know that denominator as well as a numerator. And I think it would be more helpful to see. Well, I know that both of you are, are going to be in town to vote on this next part of relief for coronavirus. Already, we've seen some announcements from the White House today, closing the border with Mexico, closing the border with Canada, uh, putting off student loan payments for 60 days. I mean, there have been a, a number of uh, provisions that have already come out. What can we look forward to as you guys are quarantined in Washington uh, to, to see voted on over the next few days? And, and how will it help? So I think we'll probably vote on Monday. Uh, right now, where we are is that Mitch McConnell has has filed a bill, and and right now there is active negotiation with the Democrats. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to come out of that negotiation. Um, as, as I look at the bill, I think it is important that we see strong action from Washington to provide economic relief. I'm very concerned. That, that, that we are going to see in coming weeks millions and millions of, of, of job losses. Yesterday, I predicted over a million job losses. The, the numbers I'm seeing now are even two and three million coming up in just a wow. week or two. I mean, it's, it's, there are a lot of layoffs. There are a lot of people hurting. There are a lot of small businesses. There are a lot of restaurants and bars and hotels that are, that are just really hurting. Um, the bill right now that, that has been introduced has really two important components to it. One is the individual relief, and that's basically sending a $1,200 check uh, to just about everybody, just about everybody who, who makes less than $99,000 a year. Mm -hmm. um, that's individual relief just to provide a check and, and, and some help. The second component uh, is focused on loans for all of the small businesses, for all of the big businesses that are, you know, the airlines are losing billions. Um, it's focused on loans to help those businesses survive so people have a job to come back to so that, that you know, when you're 
if you're a waiter, you work at a restaurant and your restaurant is shut down right now, you sure do hope that, that when you can go back, that that restaurant hasn't gone out of business. And so, right. you know, my view, look, I'm worried about what the Democrats are going to insist upon. And, and it is possible mm-hmm. this bill gets to be such a mess that I vote no. I mean, if, if, if they mm-hmm. put a bunch of garbage in there, that's possible. I will say I, I would characterize myself as pleasantly surprised as a conservative about where the bill is right now in, in that mm-hmm. it is not... It is not like the Obama stimulus. We talked last night about how TARP, for example, was very different because there you had financial firms whose own misconduct had caused much of the crisis. Right. This this right. is different. This is more like a natural disaster, more like a hurricane or a fire where, where it's not the fault of the restaurant that's shut down right now that this is happening. Um, I'm glad that it's structured as loans. I think loans are, are the right way to do it, uh, but... It is still very fluid and up in the air. I mean, what do you think, John? Yeah, I agree with you. I voted against TARP, and uh, I'm happy with that vote. The small business component of this piece, I think, is very important because it's a loan, but any money that's used to keep the payroll going out to the workers, any money that's used to just keep the rent paid and the electric bills paid Mm -hmm. uh, would be a forgiven loan. Now, if they wanted to use it for other things, that's different. So then they'd have to pay back with with interest, but it would be... uh, it would basically be a forgiven loan uh, if it's used mm. just so that the doors can open uh, three right. weeks from now or whenever those businesses come. And that'll be done through the Small Business Administration. Seventy percent of the jobs uh, in Wyoming, I'm sorry, 70 percent of jobs nationally are small through the small through small businesses, less than 500 employees. Uh, in Wyoming, it's almost 95 percent of the jobs through small businesses. So we want to make sure that the small businesses can reopen once we get the medical component of this behind us. You know, Michael, one thing about John, he was one of the first senators I got to know. And, and, and the reason is that, that he and I flew together when I was just brand, brand new elected in 2013. We flew together to Israel and Afghanistan. And one of the things really amazing about John is, is he's got a real heart for, for our troops and, and for our soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines and he travels all over the world. How many trips have you taken abroad to visit our troops? Well, I go every Thanksgiving, no matter when, uh, where our oh, wow. Wyoming National Guard are, I go every Thanksgiving. And this past Thanksgiving, uh, talked to President Trump and said, you haven't been to Afghanistan, love for you to go. Well, our Wyoming National Guard is there. Uh, and he went, we went in Air Force One. He surprised the world, certainly surprised the press and uh, <laughs> surprised the troops. And it was really a wonderful reception uh, by the president, by the troops on the ground in Afghanistan. But, uh, you know, right, every Thanksgiving, wherever they are, I'm, I'm with our Wyoming National Guard. Wow, and that's it, tremendous. Yeah, and it certainly did surprise the press. I think they all thought he was playing golf, and <laughs> that was quite a nice reveal they for did. them. Well, well yeah, there were, I forget there was one reporter had to do a big correction. I, think, I forget which <laughs> network had blasted him for playing golf, and I think he was literally in the air at the time. <laughs> he was. <laughs> Well, well, he was we, delighted we have... that the surprise worked. He wanted to be, he wanted, to, it, it worked. And there's a, there were a lot of backstories, but the president. Well, and you know, you have to do it that yeah. way. Oh, I mean, yeah. When we went, I think it was four or five of us yes. that went. And on that trip in Afghanistan, I mean, I still remember, look, I'd been sworn into the Senate three days earlier. So I'm sort of brand new to all of this. And I still remember they're putting, you know, flak jackets mm-hmm. on us and we're in helicopters wow. flying over active war zones and, and getting instruction about, all right, if they open fire on the on the chopper, here's what you got to do. And, and 
Look, obviously, when the president is coming in, you see Air Force One coming in. That has to be done at a high level of secrecy because there are a lot of bad guys who would who would love yeah. to take take a shot at, at the plane of the president. And at night and the right. windows closed and lights off and only lights were on were on the runway so they could see and land. But it was uh, very impressively done. And then they kind of a lockdown on communications on the ground until we were on the plane getting ready to go. And then they lifted uh, the restrictions so that. Every, Wait, everyone are, could send it. Are, are you back. saying, John, that someone actually managed to stop the president from tweeting? Well, that was part <laughs> That's of impossible. The, I don't that believe was, that. Well, no, no well, <laughs> someone uh, was taking the role of the president as tweeter and continued to tweet really? during the trip so that the press wouldn't be suspicious okay. or the I public wouldn't wow. be suspicious. That's cool. So, uh, yes, his own How phone was... that job? <laughs> his own phone was taken away from him for the uh, that part of the trip. It was uh, well, it was terrific. And the, the best part for me, coming back, uh, my daughter, who had gone deer hunting that day, uh, Thanksgiving in Wyoming, shot this beautiful buck, and she had texted me. I showed the picture to the president, and uh, we called her on the phone, and she's yes, Mr. President. Oh, it was the it was the call of her lifetime to talk to the president as he's looking this picture of of my daughter Hadley with the gun, with the buck, with the great <laughs> with an incredible rack on the buck. It was something. That sounds much more exciting than my Thanksgiving. You know, we we have just a, a, about a moment left here, or a minute left rather. I do want to get to one mailbag question. This is from Roger. Roger asks, why was the CDC and the government so ill prepared? For this situation, I know the system was obsolete, but what could have been done in years prior to be better prepared? Well, look, I, th I think there are a couple of things. Government bureaucracies are almost always inherently slow, and they've got a bunch of yeah. regulatory barriers. So when it came to the CDC, you look at the, the rollout of the tests. The rollout of the tests, as everyone knows, did not go very well. And 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 a big part of the reason why is the CDC tried to do it all itself. They tried to do it. Mm -hmm within the federal government, and, and they had a problem with contamination in the lab, so the first test that came out didn't work. What we've done since then, and it's been a big shift, is, is that we've empowered the private sector. We've empowered labs like the Mayo, uh, the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic to develop uh, tests, and I think they're good lessons learned, but look, that's not the first time a government bureaucracy acted like a government bureaucracy. It's not the last time that's going to happen. Right. But the more, and by the way, also on the FDA side, um, hmm. removing the barriers, we need to develop a vaccine. We need to develop treatments for coronavirus. We need to develop a cure. And there are a lot of wonderful professionals at CDC, FDA, and they're doing heroic work right now. But the FDA, they like their rules and they're hesitant. Yep. They're resistant to change. And, and, and we don't need a vaccine two years from now. We need a vaccine fast. Uh, implemented to, because we need to get out of this 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 economic slowdown and get the economy back booming. We need to save people's lives. I mean, what do you think, John? I agree completely. I think the CDC had this kind of command and control centralization of everything, including the tests. Uh, and I think it uh, it didn't do as well as I would have liked. And I think the private sector is mm -hmm. responding in a way that we know the private sector always responds. And that's why we have made the advances in the availability of tests uh, that why we were behind at the beginning. 
Well, that is a hopeful note to end on. We will have to leave it there. I know that both of you will have to go back because soon there will be a vote on the next stage of relief from coronavirus. Senator Barrasso, thank you so much for joining us. And Senator Cruz, of course, thank you as always for shedding some light on what's going on because there is a real problem in the flow of information here. So it's really nice to be able to see what, what the government is doing. We will be back with a whole lot more, but we can't do that today. So in the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.